April 7th, 2016. Welcome to Neuroscience Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Lee Goldstein, who is Associate Professor at the School of Medicine and the College of Engineering at Boston University. Hi, Lee. Hello. Hello. His work is focused on understanding the role of abnormal protein aggregation in chronic degenerative disorders, both age and trauma-related. He's also developing an array of diagnostic and investigative tools to both identify pathogenic processes early and to determine their primary mechanisms of progression. And um, around the room, we've got Matt Wynott. Hello. We've got uh, our dean, George Perry. Hi. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. And I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So, um... There's a lot to talk about with you, and I kind of want to keep it focused early on. So I, I just want to start with um, how your work has been instrumental in crystallizing what we know about some of the key pathological hallmarks of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, um, and in modeling its neurogenic processes in mice. Uh, so most of our listeners are, are kind of familiar with CTE from the news cycle for the past few years. But can you, for those who aren't, can you just give us a two-minute primer? Sure, sure. So this is, um, it's gone by various names, uh, CTE, but this was known in the uh, early days as um, uh, the punch drunk syndrome uh, that uh, Martlin actually coined this in the the late 1920s. Uh, And it's been variously called uh, traumatic encephalopathy or uh, as it was dubbed in uh, 1949 uh, uh, by uh, Critchley. Um, as a chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And, and it, when I was in medical school, this was, uh, we, we thought of this as dementia pugilistica, right? So th- this has been around for a long time. Uh, but what we now know, um, uh, is that uh, we have some of the molecular determinants or underpinnings, uh, uh, that are attributable to this disease process. And it turns out it is a bona fide neurodegenerative disease, uh, Tau protein, uh, the microtubule-associated tau protein, is a primary driver or a large part of the substrate of this disorder. And it looks like it is um, uh, associated with uh, a history of repetitive trauma in most cases. And then as uh, the disease evolves, it is then independent of the trauma. So it, it progresses over time. Uh, and it actually is ultimately a, a lethal disease. We're seeing this in folks, um, uh, in, in really young people, as young as 14, 15 uh, years old. And uh, we see the stretch over time all the way into the 80s and beyond where there's overlap with other neurodegenerative diseases. But it's primarily a telepathy. So I want to talk about the process of trying to, because a lot of the power of your work comes from this model that you've developed. Now, so can you talk to us about the process of trying to recapitulate a disease? Um, because in so many instances, disease models can become kind of circular, especially with degeneration. I mean, this instance is a little different from or more organic types of, of syndromes like Alzheimer's, I guess, and um, certain others. But um, can you just talk to us about your process and sort of generally your take on how we should conceive of and, ev- and maybe evaluate disease models in general? Yeah, and I think it's a really good question. I, I, I can't claim to have all the answers on this, but um, animal modeling is really an essential component of experimental medicine. And I, I don't even put it in the category of experiment. It's a primary part of medicine in understanding what the pathobiology is under the, under the disease processes that are occurring. And um, so in our work, we did something a little different than what has been done in the past, which is um, developing uh, models of the insults that are leading 
uh, to problems. We really wanted to model the pathology. And, and the idea of that uh, really came from under looking at the biology or what we thought might be the biology underpinning you, the human pathology that we found in brains, people who had this disorder. So our, our goal was to try to experimentally recapitulate that um, with the idea that we can get correlation from the human, bio, the human pathology, and then we can begin to look at the mechanisms, uh, that is the mechanistic causality in our animal models. And it's not one or the other. It's the two working together, I think, has the most power. And I think it's, it is problematic. I mean, we've seen this in Alzheimer's disease, certainly, where the, we were talking about this last night, uh, the animal models um, in some ways aren't models of the disease. They're models of the molecular substrates. And we've been misled in some ways, I think. And we were talking about this last night at dinner. not part of the normal biology of the organism. Right. It's different from the trauma you're creating. You're actually working with the normal biology. It, this is easier. I, I will have to say, having worked for years with uh, Alzheimer's disease animal models, where the correlation is complicated at best, um, this is as close as I've ever been to having um, a, a model of what's happening in people as it occurs. I mean, really, it's the same injury in a mouse. Uh, we're not seeing any aspect of this yet that we have not seen in people. And these, these pathological markers, they line up with behavioral sorts they, of things that you would... They do. The imaging, uh, the mechanisms, the pathology. Uh, we've even gone... I was speaking to the students about this earlier. Um, we, we, we've even gotten to the point where we can use it predictively. For example... Um, we predict that the stress concentration of the forces um, are concentrated in sulci from the human data. Uh, and, of course, we're all, we're all taught that mice and rats have a smooth, uh, they're lysensymphalic, they have a smooth brain. But of course, that's not entirely true. They have a rhinal sulcus in the, in the front, and the whole back of the brain, the little brain, the cerebellum, is highly convoluted. We don't call them sulci, we call them folia, but it's the same thing from a physics standpoint. So we, we predicted that we would find stress concentration uh, uh, in the base of the folia and cerebellum, and sure enough, we do. When, I, when we started looking in uh, the human brains, um, based on that finding, we're starting to see evidence of uh, cere cerebellar problems uh, that we don't see in, 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 with clinical manifestations because they're too subtle. Uh, but the pathology appears to be there. Uh, it's still early days on that. But when, when, when an animal model is then predictive where you can go back into the brains and start finding lesions, uh, you start thinking that the model may have some validity. So some of this is is just as basic as how force is transduced into a cascade that then causes a bunch of downstream effects that, that cause degenerative processes. I mean, you, you should tell the story because it's a little more complex than that. There's a sort of a one-two sucker punch aspect to the but, but there's a, it begins with this force trans, transduction, and you've kind of worked that part out really well. Right. How do we get to the molecular side? Well, we're starting, we're starting to do that, and, and it's really a long process. So once you have the model, that, it's just the work just begins, yeah. really. Um, but I think even that part of it is important because um, uh, there have been uh, both uh, political and social um, forces at play here that um, – that have made this more complicated in the sports world and in the Department of Defense. Um, uh, there have been all sorts of complications around this issue 
that are still very controversial. And that has clouded a lot of the, uh, of the science. So one of the things that we have, I think, here is um, first just to establish some facts. Like, w- what is this thing that we're looking at? Uh, w- what is the descriptive components around which we are formulating hypotheses? And then secondly, um, once we have that correlative data, uh, can we then start formulating very basic uh, pathobiological mechanisms? Is it in this category, this category, or this category? And then to make sure that we don't overlap the categories, we don't have category errors, like CDC uh, actually defines uh, a concussion as a traumatic brain injury. And that's not really the case because they're two different things. One's a neurological syndrome, uh, which is concussion, and injury is actually an injury. It's uh, structural damage to an organ or a tissue. And so before we even get to the mechanisms, even having clarity around the definitions is really very helpful. And I think that's one of the things that we've been able to do. And when those were confused, for example, in Alzheimer's disease, where we confuse the, the animal model with the disease, well, it let us, I mean, you could speak to this. Well, it still continues to. It does. It does. It, and it's part of it. The confusion is, I, I, I would say, is that we're confusing the animal model and the pathways that are modeled as as the disease, and it is not. And, and so, unfortunately, it, unfortunately, and it's led to all sorts of um, downstream consequences. And hundreds of cures that don't work in people. Uh, you said it, and I, and I would agree with it. Yeah. So uh, this is somewhat predictive. This, so CTE is, is supposed to be predictive of certain other degenerative processes like Alzheimer's. Is that true? So is there a, a sort of a final common pathway that you imagine? Are there two very different things? Well, well, well we don't know that yet. So we don't, we don't know that yet. But what we do know is that CTE in and of itself is a bona fide age-related progressive neurodegenerative disorder what happens to be ultimately lethal over many there decades. There are epidemiological studies that suggest head trauma. I don't know about CTE, but sub-CTE does increase your risk of developing Alzheimer's subsequently, correct? That, without question. It's, it's and there were earlier studies that showed that uh, people who had head trauma developed acutely amyloid deposits. Are those still valid? So, so those, uh, there have been several studies. Um, uh, that have been done on this, and it's usually in the context of catastrophic neurotrauma. So yeah, usually, they lead to the fatality. Yeah, yes, it, in, in in the short term. So um, I don't know how to evaluate those because those are not the types of injuries we're looking at. So all sorts of things um, go awry. At, so uh, there's a difference with car accidents or different types of trauma. Well, we we know that those types of injuries that have led to catastrophic neurotrauma where amyloid has been found soon after those injuries. Um, I, I'm not, I don't know how to evaluate that amyloid pathology. I think what you're referring to um, was the epidemiological data that indicates that prior history of... Repet- I'm, I'm actually meaning both. Oh, you mean both. Okay. Both. So, so, so let's separate that. Yeah. So there's um, evidence in the literature, case reports, uh, um, of... Uh, catastrophic neurotrauma that results in uh, amyloid deposition in the short term after the injuries. Okay, that's one category. Correct. And eventual resolution if the people survive for a longer period. And there are a few cases where this has happened, yes. And not surprisingly, those lesions remain extant, or presumably. We don't know. We don't know. Um, 
The other category is of the risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. Um, one of the ones that comes up regularly and seems to be valid is history of head trauma. Okay, so th- those are uh, I put those in separate categories just because we have the, the the amount of data that we have in the latter is much greater than in the former. Um, so we know that APOE is a risk factor, age is advancing age, and head trauma, prior head trauma. Um, and, and, and we have seen, and a colleague, uh, Tor Stein, has um, published a paper last year, I believe, in um, uh, Acta Neuropathologica, um, uh, that the pattern of Alzheimer's disease in people who've had head trauma uh, actually is, is a little different than what we're seeing in um, uh, Alzheimer's disease without head trauma appears to be a little earlier deposition. The pattern of deposition is a little different. So it may, there may be some overlap later in life and the pattern may be a little, uh, a little different. Um, but where we don't see this is earlier on in the young, young youngsters, the teenagers, the young adults who have this disease. Um, we're not seeing any amyloid pathology at all. Could you comment on the fact that uh, in your talk, you mentioned that the progression of the disease followed, you know, a different pattern relative of CTE relative to Alzheimer's disease. And I was wondering if you could comment on that and also how you think it might progress. I mean, you sort of pointed out that the sulci seem to be like a particularly sensitive portion of the brain, which is susceptible to, you know, having the tau deposits after, you know, some sort of traumatic event. How does that then manifest as, you know, a degeneration that, you know, spreads throughout the brain? Right. So, so that, I mean, we're, we're working, we and others are working on, this is where the rubber meets the road, as it were. So, so this is a very important question. And, um, we, I think we have a, at least a very good hypothesis with a lot of supportive data of why we're seeing it, where we're, where we're seeing it. So, and that's independent of the progression. So I'll get to that in just a second. But the, where we see it, the pattern of distribution, the depths of the soul sigh in and around these small blood vessels. And I, I didn't mention this in the lecture, but we also see it at gray white, uh, uh, junctures, places that you would predict based on the biomechanics of the tissue. That is tissue with different, um, uh, w- 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 with different material properties. Um, uh, that have different tensors of how stress, uh, shear, shear forces are, um, distributed in, 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 in those tissues. And it interfaces at places where stress is concentrated in sulci, uh, and in and around small blood vessels, uh, for reasons that we discussed, which are the same, which are stress concentration. So if, if those injuries are occurring, um, uh, where the forces are concentrated in those areas, we start to see a collection of, uh, of pathologies that could trigger the longer-term sequelae. So this is where we start to get into a little bit of hand-waving. But uh, we have a lot of data that there's a traumatic microvascular injury, um, a traumatic microvasculopathy. And, Do you, you know, think that's mechanical? The blood vessels just got stressed and broken? Well, so maybe not broken, but stressed. And, and we have direct evidence of that from the pathology, right? So we get this very spotty pattern of perivascular uh, tau deposition. And there's breakdown in the blood-brain barrier. And there's a breakdown in the blood-brain barrier. And we see hem- hemosiderin-laden macrophages in and around uh, these uh, collections. And we also see, I, I didn't have time to get into it uh, and talk, but there's uh, chronic neuroinflammation around these lesions. And so we... Since, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, please, but, please. But... Uh, Blood vessels are sort of linear structures that are right in the, the in the way of these movements. And I guess the idea of the 
sulci is that the gyri move apart and toward each other during the movements in the brain and have to use the sulci bottoms as a hinge. And so that means that that anything that's running around the bottom of that thing is going to get stretched and that's compressed right. and stretched and compressed. That, that's, that's and right. one of the things that has to run around the bottom of it is blood vessels. That, that's right. That's and so exactly blood right. vessels are likely to be getting stressed and compressed. That's right. And that could open them up. Yeah, it, so so right. the blood vessels that are running in that direction are the... Well, but it, I, I would say it's a little, little different than that. So, so, so at these, um, uh, the, the way the shearing forces are happening, we, we've modeled this now in collaboration with uh, colleagues at Lawrence uh, Livermore National Laboratory. So, so it, it's not so much the pulling, this sort of thing. It's that um, the, the way force interacts with that type of uh, discontinuity, it is a discontinuity or dishomogeneity, is that the forces, e- even in the absence of macroscopic movement, will will uh, the shearing forces will concentrate, even in the absence of the uh, flapping of the tissue. So the flapping of tissue is, is much so slower. So use a notch in concrete as an example, and the notch yes. in concrete always moves down from the notch. It doesn't move. That's right. This way. That's right. And so that means. The thing that's being broken is um, is something that's running parallel to the surface of the cortex at the bottom of that. That's right. I mean, it's another way of saying that there's stress concentration at the, at the bottom. And the in the the vectors, though, the way they manifest, the way they interact with the tissue at that very point of, of trauma is going to depend on the on the local geometry and the local forces at that point. And it's, it, it's non-uniform. Can you predict the shape of that kind of thing? Because some blood vessels are running one way, some blood That's vessels right. are running That's right, and we see that pathologically. So, so I, I think I pointed that out, is that there's really no other way to explain why, within a couple of hundred microns, why there, uh, with vessels of very similar caliber, why one is affected and one isn't, if it's not local, focal local geometry. So well, the only way we can understand it, and, and um, George, you, you mentioned this, is that is to do the serial reconstruction. Um, you can do this by imaging. Absolutely. You don't even have to do it the old way. That's right. That's right. So, so we're, we're uh, very hot to do this. Because if you do it the other way, you're going to spend a lot of time. That's right. Um, there's one other question. You talked about you can also see vessels that are degenerating. Yeah. Do you actually see those in human brain, too? So the lumen is gone. Yeah. So we're beginning to do some of that work right now. We actually have um, some uh, 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 funding from uh, the Chronic Defective Neurotrauma uh, Consortium through the, D- the DOD and the VA and uh, to look at exactly that question. So we're, we're beginning to look at um, doing some electron microscope studies. You know, the easiest way to do is light microscopy, stain for collagen type 4, and use glucose transporter 1. That is a good way to do it. Yeah, I've done this. That, that is a good way to do that. That is a very you don't good way to do it. need to do any EM. But, but, do the EM after. Yeah, yeah, but what we're, here, <laughs> yeah, but, but don't the, the, rush out and do the, 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 the question that we're um, most concerned about is, is, is actual loss of, uh, of the integrity of the, the astrocytic feed. I mean, I think because what we're but getting... You'll know that. You'll know that, yeah. Because that's related to the blood-brain barrier and the glucose transporter one. That's a great area. It's a great idea. That's a, the antibodies are readily available. Yeah, it's, it's easy to very do. Very quick to do. Yeah, that 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 we could and we should do that. So, uh, so that part has the breakdown of some vessels. 
the last of the blood-brain barrier right there. And then you see this marker, tau, some phosphorylated tau, which is a marker that forms around that. And then, you know, and then, and then brain damage. <laughs> right. right. So, so the, what's the connection? So actually the, the damage to blood vessels, which must happen in lots of other situations too, then is that just going to be an automatic? Well, we don't know. Um, uh, but our supposition is, is that, I mean, we're seeing this after single uh, experimental injuries. So, um, and, and these are persistent traumatic microvasculopathy. So it's, um, uh, we presume some of the vessels will involute, uh, the ones that are m- most damaged. Uh, if you lose endothelial cells in a whole bunch of them, um, I, my, my guess is you're going to get in, in, involution. Uh, some of the, the vessels may, um, survive. Uh, some of them may, it looks in our hands, at least they look like they, they, are structurally intact, but they're leaky. So there could be some parts of the cortex that aren't getting blood anymore, and those are obviously We're in worried danger. About that. We're worried and about that. And then there are ones that are getting the blood straight on without a blood-brain barrier in the way, and those are in danger too. Because That's right. There's stuff in the blood that the brain. Uh, absolutely, to absolutely. And we we have now evidence. We, I mean, we have some obvious players from the blood. You have we have a blood-brain barrier for for uh, a good a good reason, and and when that's disrupted, um, particularly if it's chronic. Um, there are going to be consequences. Uh, so that's actually something that we can exploit diagnostically, and we're beginning to do that now. And it also offers an opportunity therapeutically, and, and this is actually an important point, because um, in most um, neurodegenerative diseases, we're always worried about, or even brain diseases generally, getting therapeutics uh, into the brain is always problematic because of the blood-brain barrier. Well, in this case... If the blood-brain barrier is broken, we have a way to have site-directed delivery only to those only places. To the damage yeah. So in, in, in some ways, it's actually therapeutic. What's useful. the time frame of, of that? Because that, that happens over the course of weeks, or is that like an immediate part of the insult? Well, it depends on who you ask, and it depends on how the experiment was done. So the party line, I think, at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, the party line on this, it's not uh, where our take on it, is that uh, within a couple of days, the blood-brain barrier is completely back to normal. And our, our data is not consistent with that. Um, at least in our experimental models and in our you, you, uh, cases of human brain, it, it appears that there is long-standing, if not persistent, and possibly even progressive microvascular injury, injury at particular foci. So, do you think you could localize this, like in you know, sites of brain tumors? Um, that's exactly we, we're doing that right now, and we actually a uh, paper that we're about to submit. Um, I don't know if that's going to, need to be edited, but in any case, uh, we, we, we've exploited exactly. That you can deliver this. Yep. Yes, that's that. it. We're, we're taking advantage of exactly that uh, characteristic, and both in experimental animals and in uh, this has been done in uh, um, humans in a, in a, in a pilot uh, way. Um, this, this this looks like a promising approach, and in, in the goal there would be not to see who has CTE. But who has had an injury that might be potentially more, there might be more um, pathology oh. or damage in the acute setting that would make, that would put you at a potential greater risk. So that's part of the problem we have now in the clinic is we, we don't know who's hurt and who isn't. We know who's been hit, 
or who's had an injury. So is that also could be about the chemotherapy brain? Some people be more susceptible to chemotherapy? Inflammation is so tied into that. I mean, you can assay inflammation, right? I mean, that's that's sort of one parameter. We we, we do need better tools for imaging neuroinflammation, I think. Uh, that that's something that a lot of people are very interested in. Um, there's a huge commercial uh, interest in this. And our tools for imaging neuroinflammation, uh, uh, I would say, are still in um, not not what they could or should be. Uh, we desperately need uh, some good tools to do that. But you're exactly right. The neuroinflammatory component would, uh, it, it would be very helpful to know that clinically. So I'm still stuck on the modeling the forces. So it's incredible to me that the degree of head displacement you see in these animals and the speeds are so huge, yet tens of nanometers apart, you have some vessels that are experiencing a completely different set of vectors than the vessel adjacent to it with like nanometers, right? Uh, uh, microns. microns. Tens of microns. I mean, microns. Yeah. Or tens or hundreds of I microns. But, really but that makes sense amazing. because these capillaries... Uh, the small vessels, and it's probably not restricted just to the capillaries, but they're going to be the most fragile. They're they're not linear structures, yeah, it, it, right? They're highly branched, and it, it it depends on the local geometry mm-hmm. at the point that it's intersecting uh, these shearing forces. So, in fact, the pathology that we see, the pattern of pathology, you can predict. You, you can well, predict you, I, we, you could predict it, and we're we're actually doing some uh, modeling for this. But uh, the fact that you see it on a slide. Um, b- belies the notion that you're just doing something descriptive by looking at tissue. I mean, you can actually formulate hypothesis, hypotheses based on the distribution. That's a valid hypothesis because this is a very unusual distribution pattern. And it suggests it can't be consistent with everything. It, it has to, you have to have some way to get to that pathology. So it was the pathology, the post-mortem pathology that suggested the mechanism. So this, you know, distinction that it's descriptive and therefore worthless or is irrelevant or there's some secondary status to descriptive pathology is uh, really missing a point. Well, the neuropathologists have yeah. really convinced Back you. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a pathology wannabe, but really paying attention to the pathology. Well, I mean, you know this, too. You do this, too. This is a, a – if you're thinking while looking at tissue – you're testing hypotheses. It, it's not a simply descriptive process. You mentioned capillaries are affected. What about vessels with smooth muscle, muscle layers? Have you looked at that? So, smooth muscle versus non-smooth muscle? So we, we've not looked at that. And um, the only reason being that we we followed where we see the most pathology. So um, uh, we've seen less of it in larger caliber vessels. Um, the more... Um, uh, you know, the, uh, it's a little bit of hand waving on this uh, at this point, but um, the more structural integrity the vessel has, uh, uh, the more likely it is to be able to weather the local force. I mean, it's just there's also a directional pattern. The bigger vessels are going mostly absolutely uh, normal to the surface, absolutely. And uh, and I, what I was trying to get at earlier is that the stresses ought to be tangential to the surface. Uh, if it's and, like concrete, and we and, were thinking about and, concrete as a model, and uh, and they are, that's so our our um, our computational modeling. So, so um, 
doing this uh, in a dynamic uh, way and, and not doing it in, in a, you know, an engineer would do this quasi statically. That is, you, you move the tissue a little bit, you measure it, you move it a little more, but you're doing it under it very slow speeds. And, and, and the brain under quasi static conditions is, is much like jelly or jello. And, and, and it, but the, the way um, the tissue responds at these very high speeds um, uh, is quite different. It, it, actually, the material properties are quite different. And, and we, um, when we look at the shear forces in the tissue, it is exactly as you suggest. And, and kind of has to be based on really classical uh, Newtonian physics and um, the uh, properties of matter. I, I mean, they're, they're bulk properties of matter. So is there a clue in the fact that stage 3 CT always affects the medial temporal lobe? I mean, does that have does that point to some specific areas of susceptibility or why well, is it always So so, that, so that's a really interesting question and that that really follows on your earlier question Matt. and um, so once you start the disease, once this, the disease is triggered um, at least my thinking on this and this is now really conjectural um, is that you've now initiated um, a disease process that now is independent of further trauma. And, and, and it really explodes this idea that there's a acute and chronic phase. And I, it just doesn't appear that way to me. It appears that the chronic phase starts acutely and um, uh, the, uh, uh, the acute phase actually can extend throughout the whole uh, um, length of the disease. So the whole notion of acute and chronic really is kind of exploded when we think about this disease. And so, but there's got to be a component where there, there appears to be spread over time to involve more structures. Even in those individuals who've had a lot of trauma, um, our, our best guess based on cross-sectional work is that once you get it started, it, it now has a life of its own, as it were. Does that mean it propagates through space? The way you're drawing it with your hands, which our listeners cannot see, it looks like it's propagating through space. Yes. So our hypothesis <laughs> at this point is that it is propagating neuroanatomically. And um, so if that is true, um, we have to think at both the cellular level and the neuroanatomical level. So at the cellular level, we can already see, um, and we have a, a paper with... Uh, 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 Ping Lu's uh, group last summer, um, we can see miscompartmentalization of the phosphorylated tau initially in the axons, the microtubule-associated protein, appears to fall off as phosphorylated. Um, but then we see uh, um, uh, it looks like it's miscompartmentalized and is then redirected uh, retrogradely back into the soma and the dendrite. So we know that there's there appears to be, we haven't seen this, uh, but we it, it appears... Um, uh, to miscompartmentalize and be trafficked or transported in a, in, 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 um, uh, in a pathological manner. Not along the vasculature, but along axonal tracts. Well, that's one way, right? So there could be other ways. So we also see, uh, going in the other way, we see these uh, um, accumulations uh, um, at, at the other end, uh, going toward uh, uh, um, uh, anterograde, um, and we, we suspect... Uh, that um, there may be multiple ways in which the tau is then traveling not only intraneuronally, but possibly conjecturally uh, transsynaptically. Um, and, uh, and then additionally, there may be, uh, we suspect there may be some exosomal release, and um, there's a likelihood that there's some glymphatic uh, paraneuronal um, uh, transmission. By the way, we see tau build up in astrocytes. 
we see astrocytic, um, a- huge astrocytic tangles. So um, we suspect that uh, this is not just restricted to axons. So <clears throat> the ultimate goal here is obviously to prevent CTA from, from ever occurring. And, you know, you've sort of highlighted, you know, you've got the initial trigger and then, you know, it could be sort of a self-propagating, you know, problem from there on out. And if the hypothesis is that it's sort of starting from, you know, some weakened capillaries and not to go back to sort of a concrete uh, analogy, could potentially be the therapy would be to strengthen the capillaries. And then you end up having individuals who are going to be resistant to developing CTE. And I'm is there sort of avenues of research along those lines that are looking at, you know, strengthening blood vessels as a way, you know, you got the question in the talk of how can we prevent CTE from happening? And one is which, you know, don't play football or and don't, you know, send or don't hit your head. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. so like, you know, you so play football, just don't hit your head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tech. Um, there are a lot of other fields that would benefit from the vascular improvements in the brain too. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering if this, this, you know, if you've sort of found, you know, this sort of initial target, Maybe this is this is where you know research should be devoted to, and you know there's obviously potential benefits. And are there ways to sort of strengthen the capillaries and be able to test those sort of vasculature hypotheses? You know, you can't control the vector forces. You know that that, that you can't do. But what you can control is the capillaries. Well, there, so there are two ways to think about that. One one is what what is bad about having you know when something goes wrong with your capillary or capillaries. Um, what 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 is what is the consequence of that, and why is that causing? Uh, 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 where is that in the pathogenesis of the, of the uh, downstream disorder? So, so one of those is um, uh, neuro, neuroinflammation. So um, clearly, um, that is something that's imminently tractable um, now with therapeutics that are already available. There are uh, large. Uh, pharmaceutical companies that are uh, working on this. And we now have a clue about some of the cells that are involved both intrinsically in the brain and from the periphery uh, that are involved uh, in, in, in this problem. And, and, and it, it spills over across disease entities. Um, uh, you know, uh, there are other neuroinflammatory disorders, uh, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease has a component, many other uh, disorders like cancers and so on and so forth. Uh, but the other uh, aspect of this is that uh, the blood vessels and the cerebral vasculature is the reactivity um, is also off. So the function, the neurovascular control is off, and that may be a part and parcel of some of these symptoms as, as well. And there are ways, um, uh, some pharma, uh, uh, pharmaceutical uh, interventions uh, that might be able to target the cerebrovascular reactivity problem. So, so that's a, a great place to start looking. Obviously, though, the targeting the propagation of it would be that. That's right. So then I could have some little micro lesions at the bottom of my sulci, but I would, my whole brain wouldn't go bad. That's right. That's right. So we had a, a paper last summer with this very idea in mind uh, uh, with Ping Lu's group who uh, developed um, uh, some antibodies uh, directed against the uh, uh, particular, uh, particularly pathogenic form of tau. And, um, and, and it does look to be, uh, therapeutically effective, uh, with all the caveats that come with immunotherapies. Um, uh, on the other hand, from a mechanistic standpoint, it suggests that as a therapeutic strategy, that's probably workable, as you're suggesting. So that if we could limit the damage to where it is and not have it propagate, we're probably better off than if we allow it to propagate. Are there helmets or other things that can reduce this? Something that... Right. So... So the issue there, the whole helmet issue... Helmet or other types of... 
right? Yeah, yeah. So, so it becomes very problematic because, uh, you know, hel- helmet technology is really built to prevent skull fracture. And, and they're very effective at doing that. Um, but the motion of the head, um, you, that, that, that becomes more, of, that's a more difficult problem that isn't really addressed at all with the helmet. In fact, the helmet potentially can make it worse, right? Because you're adding weight, you're adding surface area um, in, in blast, you're adding um, uh, diffraction surfaces. Um, and in fact, uh, there's significant, <laughs> there's some uh, uh, data to suggest that some of the helmets actually make the whole situation worse. And certainly, in sports, now helmets are used as uh, "quote unquote" a weapon. I mean, they're they're used offensively. Um, so you lead with the head. Uh, you have this big mass. You have a big person with now uh, you know protected uh, shell, and um, and, the, and it, it's uh, used effectively in, in, in the sport. So you're, you might be better off without any helmet and playing naked. Okay. Okay. Caveat there. I'm imagining my 12 year old going, "Yay! I can take my helmet <laughs> off and go bike riding down this hill." Yeah. So keep your helmets. Yeah. No. 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 Keep your helmets off. But, <laughs> but there you have to avoid <laughs> getting your head hit. You know, so so um, really the the the, yeah, the, not, the the public health message here is not about a helmet or not. It's about not hitting your head um, uh, with with these forces. And And it's worth mentioning that in your models, one insult can produce a pretty significant uh, effect. This this is true. And that's really the worrisome piece. Now, we have enough redundancy in in our brains that, um, you know, one injury is unlikely uh, uh, you know, without uh, in a close head injury is unlikely to result in uh, it does happen, but it's, it's likely to be rare. So, so everybody who has a head injury is not going to develop CTE. I, I think we're safe to say that. On the other hand, the number of people who will develop CTE is not zero. So it's somewhere between zero and a hundred, um, and we don't really know where we are with that. But it's not zero, and it's probably not a hundred. <laughs> That's reassuring. <laughs> yeah, very comfortable. Yeah, feel very comfortable. Yeah, but anyway, but yeah, that that's uh, it's it's been great having you here. Middle schoolers, keep your helmets on. Yes, just in case, just keeps those skull, those skulls intact. Um, if, if not the rest of you, which is the take home message. Um, but thank you for being with us, and this has been Thank our you. scientist talk shop. Mm-hmm.